Welcome to Trust Me, the official podcast of the Trust and Estate Section of the California Lawyers Association. The Trust and Estate Section seeks to further the knowledge of practitioners through updates and a wide range of educational opportunities. In addition, the section monitors and participates in the formation of laws and regulations that impact the trust and estates field and represents section members in the governance of the California Lawyers Association. For further information about the trust and estates section, please go to calawyers.org, click on Sections, Trusts and Estates to learn about upcoming educational opportunities and the benefits of section membership. And now, to your host of today's podcast. Hi, I'm Herb Stroh, past chair of Texcom, and I'll be your host for this episode of Trust Me. Today's episode features two guest speakers who presented at the fall 2020 annual meeting, Patrick Coleman and Vivian Therene. Their presentation entitled Case Law and Other Changes in Trust and Estates Practice was very well received. We wanted to get them on our podcast to discuss a handful of cases that we felt were most relevant to trust and estate attorneys. Their interview is broken into two episodes. In this first episode, we'll discuss Pena versus Day, which involves a question of what constitutes an amendment to a trust. We'll also discuss Tubb versus Berkowitz, a power of appointment case. We'll discuss the practical issues raised by both of these cases for both litigators and planners. And now for part one of my conversation with Vivian and Patrick. Vivian, uh, please go ahead and introduce yourself. Herb, thanks for letting me join you and Patrick. Uh, my name is Vivian Thorine. I'm an attorney at Holland and Knight, and I am a trial lawyer in the area of uh, complex trust estate, conservatorship, and guardianship litigation. And Patrick, how about you? So Herb, um, we all three have something in common. We're all on the on Texcom together at the same time. So as uh, you all know, I'm also a former chair of Texcom and I practice with the firm of Timmerman, Seeley and Coleman. We're up in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have offices in San Jose and Danville. Great. Appreciate you coming on to uh, Trust Me. I invited you because of the, the wonderful presentation you did at the at CLA's annual meeting this year. I know you've been doing that for a number of years. This year, of course, was a a virtual conference. How did you feel that that went this year? Well, it's, you know, one of the things I think that has caused us to get used to this for, format is just um, the change in how we practice in general. We've all gotten much more familiar with using Zoom and other types of uh, forms of communication. So as much as maybe you would have asked me a few years ago, if doing um, the annual program the way we did it uh, was going to be a problem. And I might've said a few years ago, gee, I don't know how that's going to work out. I think it worked out very well this year. Yeah. I, I can tell you from uh, the attendance we had, I, I checked back, we had 743 attendees, uh, seven hours of MCLE over three days. So it, it did work out okay. Uh, I guess that's maybe part of the new normal is we'll be doing more of this type of thing. Uh, I, I want to make sure that we have enough time to, to get through the cases. I've asked you to pick uh, five or six cases, uh, statutory highlights, things like that from your presentation. And so I thought we could get into that. Uh, Vivian, we flipped a coin. Uh, you get the lead. Uh, what's your first case? I thought one of the more interesting cases that we could talk about is the Pena v. Day matter. That is a 2019 opinion. Um, it comes to us from Sacramento County. And this is, this has a lot of 
questions that we can ask ourselves both, I think, from the litigation and the estate planning perspective. So we've got a settlor, uh, James Anderson. He has a trust and he's got a First Amendment and he wants to make changes. So in this particular situation, he has an attorney who did not draft the trust or the First Amendment. And the attorney says, yeah, why don't you go ahead and make the changes you want, send them to me and I'll prepare the Second Amendment. So our settlor does this and the way he does it is he takes the First Amendment and he interlineates it. He makes all the changes that he wants. He writes them all in. He takes the trust. He takes the interlineated First Amendment. Then he slaps a post-it on both of those documents and says, hey, Scott, here they are. First one's 2004. That's the trust. Second one is 2008. Enjoy. Best, Rob. And as you can imagine, or as you may recall, at the end of the day, the Second Amendment never gets signed. Uh, and this happens within, you know, just a couple of months where there's some back and forth where the attorney's staff prepares the amendment. The attorney calls the client to say, hey, I have some questions. The client says, you know what, I'm out of town. Can I call you next week? But the day of that call, the client is hospitalized and he dies within about a month or so. So you've got this successor trustee goes to the trial court and says, um, I'm petitioning for instructions. I don't know whether these interlineations constitute a valid instrument. Let Tell me what you think, court. And the trust, the successor trustee then files a motion for summary judgment and says, you know what, these interlineations, they do not constitute an amendment. And the trial court agrees. So our poor beneficiary appeals. And unfortunately, the court of appeal affirms the trial court and says, it's undisputed that our decedent set lore intended for this beneficiary to receive part of his estate. But then the question is, why then does the court of appeal affirm? And was the decision the correct one? And what comes into play in this case is the methods by which someone can amend or modify their trust. And in this case, the settlor in his trust said, I can amend, modify my trust at any time during my lifetime, but it has to be in writing, signed and delivered to the trustee. It's obviously delivered to the trustee because our settlor is the trustee, but the question is whether it was signed. And the problem is it's not signed. They're just interlineations. Uh, and you might want to, well, what about the post-it? Can't the post-it count as a signature? Well, right. why not? Uh, the problem is that the post-it said, here they are. Basically, once the changes are made, then I will sign it. So the trust says it has to be signed and delivered to the trustee. So in a way, you've got these competing intentions expressed. And so I think the Court of Appeal, as sad as this is for our beneficiary and where there's an acknowledgement that, yes, the Benny was supposed to take the expressed intention in our decedent's trust says it's got to be signed and this doesn't count as a signed document. Do you think that's the, the right decision? I mean, I I get it. You know, it, it didn't follow the the rules of of a correct amendment, but it, well, it's pretty clear what decedent's intent is. I mean, do you think the court, the trial court, and then ultimately the appellate court came to the right decision here? You know, we're litigators, so we could argue both sides, right? So depending on what side I'm on, I'll argue it. I think at the end of the day, though, I think this could have been a hair splitter, but I think it was correctly decided because the decedent's intention that was very clear in his trust uh, required the signature. 
it would be different, for example, if he had done the interlineations in a way that suggested there was a signature or some other formal way. And maybe the attorney could have advised the client to send the proposed changes in a different manner. But I guess in my mind, that raises a question for me that I would ask Patrick or you, which is, what do you do when a client says they want to make changes to their estate plan to avoid a situation like this from coming up? Do you ask, are you in a hurry? How fast do you need this? Because it's not clear that the attorney knew that there were health problems with our settlor. Patrick, what's your practice? Well, so when I read these cases, I'm always thinking, how do they affect how our firm practices and what lessons do we need to take from them on a day-to-day basis? And, you know, when I read this case, I thought about risk mitigation. I thought about what do you do when you have unsigned documents sitting around? And then I thought, well, so how does this impact administration if someone dies? So I'm thinking about this case from a risk mitigation perspective. And if you have knowledge that your client has some type of medical medical problem, I think from a risk mitigation standpoint, maybe there are things that you can do. One of the things that I do as a matter of practice, if I know that a client has a serious medical condition, this is the knowledge, like you know, so what do you do to mitigate your risk? I'll take pretty detailed copious notes during that meeting and my clients usually bring in a questionnaire that has a list of their assets on it. So I'll take detailed notes and I'll reference the assets on the questionnaire and I'll have my client date and sign my notes. I've actually gone into court a couple of times where a client unfortunately died before they've signed. And I filed a petition with the court to confirm the terms of the trust based upon my notes. And I cite to 15200, which is no declaration of trust creates a trust. 15201, the intent to create a trust. 15202, trust property. And 15205, a trust has to have beneficiaries. So I will go into court, attach my notes as an exhibit, cite to these probate code sections and ask the court to confirm that this is a trust. And I've gotten that order a number of times. So that's one of the things from a risk mitigation standpoint where the client just may not get back before they could sign. Uh, The other thing that we do is if we know someone does have a a medical illness, we do put those on the top of the pile. Those get expedited through. And I think that's about all that you can do to mitigate the risk of knowing that a client has a medical problem and not getting the document signed. So then, you know, we have this other issue, unsigned documents. You know, you got clients that you send drafts to and you don't hear from them. And, you know, some of those clients could die and you don't want that to become your problem. So we have ticklers and reminders. And after a certain period of time, if we just haven't heard from clients, just standard practice, we'll send a basic letter out that says, hey, your documents are unsigned and therefore ineffective. And it's just something to have in our file that, you know, we've, we've told you. Um, And then before I move forward, and I think the most interesting thing is the administration part. So someone has died and you get the document and there are interlineations on that. But before I move forward, um, do either of you have any comments on the first two things that I discussed, mitigation or just unsigned documents? Yeah, those are good points. I, um, I I certainly, if I've got a client where I've sent drafts out, I will uh, send some follow-ups to them and, and somewhere along the way, 
I will say, okay, I guess this is nicely, but this is on a back burner. We're not taking any actions. When you're ready to complete your estate plan, then let us know. So I, I do want to have something in the file that says I tried and they just put it on a back burner. And, and so it's up to them to re, re, uh, reconnect and, and get the estate plan done. I have a question. Do you either of you ask from the outset when a client comes to you and says they want to change their estate plan? Do you ask, are you in a hurry? Do you have any medical problems or something that would prompt more urgency on your part? Or do you wait for them to just tell you? I guess I'll go first, Vivian, on that. And then Herb, you might respond. I mean, when you're meeting with a client and uh, oftentimes it's emotional. This, those can be emotional meetings when you're meeting with a client and they tell you they don't have long to live. So in my experience, uh, it, it, it just comes up by virtue of you're, you're meeting with someone, you're trying to get, know, get to know something about them, you're asking them, so what brings you to want to do estate planning? So I don't overtly ask it, but with those types of cases or clients, it definitely comes out in that meeting. They, they'll let you know that that's why they are there. Yeah, and, and I smiled when you when you asked the question because it's it's tough when you have a ninety year old client come in and say, "Well, how long are you going to live? How much time do I have?" So, <laughs> you know, but 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 it's true. It, it does tend to, I think, just sort of come up as part of the the discussion. But I, Patrick, I do like the idea of just having people sometimes sign the notes. Because I could see in the in this painted case where, you know, you could argue, well, it's not a done deal until he signed it, and he could certainly change his mind between when he signed that little post-it and and executing the document. So I I suppose that's that's out there. Uh, Patrick, you had something else you wanted to to add. So it's not uncommon uh, to get a, a trust when someone has died and the settlers put some markings on it. So two practice tips that come out of that, you know, at our firm, when we're sending out like a 1606 1.7 notification, or, you know, we're, we're trying to make sure that we, we have the right documents. Our preference is to have the original trust because a copy is not something that you're going to find, likely find that the settlor has marked up. So I think it's best practices is to say, bring in the original trust. You're asking for the original will anyway, because you need that to lodge it with the court. Don't accept a copy, demand the original. And then my preference is if you've got a bunch of interlineations on an original, rather than me decide what that means, you can always ask the court for instructions to interpret the terms of the trust and what whatever the settlor has done with marking that trust up, whether that somehow amended or changed the trust, and then you can notice out to everyone and at least you protected your trustee client. Right, but if you're following this painted case, you've got to make sure that the interlineations are consistent with the underlying trust instrument or whatever the prior wishes are for the manner in which one can amend or revoke their trust, right? Because I could see going to court to seek instructions on interlineations if, for example, they had followed your practice, Patrick, and had initialed each page of the interlineated document. Well, what if we just had this document? And this is exactly what the trustee did. She said, I don't know if this is legit or not. You tell me. And then that's when we went down that interpretation path. I was going to say, I, I did have a case with interlineations. And Fortunately, all the beneficiaries were okay with the the changes. They felt like, well, you know, that's what what mom wanted to do, 
And and so they all signed a consent. We did a petition for instructions. Everybody approved it. And, you know, if the, if the court says, well, if all the bennies are on board, then uh, okay. Yeah, and I still think that, you know, whether it's this, this Pena case or what Herb's doing, it just, I still think best practices, if you're not sure and you want clarity on what those interlineations have done with the document, go and get a court order confirming it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, Patrick, I think you have the next case. So this is this Tubbs v. Berkowitz case. And when you first read through this, you think, well, this doesn't necessarily seem that surprising or interesting. But what I did when I read this is I dug a little bit deeper to see what's going on, and I'll talk about that in a second. So here are facts of this case. Husband and wife, they create a joint revocable living trust. Wife dies first. So husband, successor trustee, the trust says divide the trust into two, a surviving spouse's trust and a marital trust. This marital trust is one of these marital general power of appointment trusts. It's irrevocable, non-amendable, and it grants the surviving spouse a lifetime general power of appointment. So husband is dividing the trust into these two sub-trusts and the daughter disagrees with the assets that he's funding into the respective sub-trusts. So what do you do if you're getting flack from a child and you've got a general power of appointment over one of the irrevocable trusts? You exercise it. And that's exactly what the husband did here. So he exercises his general power of appointment over the marital trust and he appoints all the property to himself. So problem solved, right? You think that the game is over, but not so fast. His daughter objects. Her argument is that, hey, when the same party is trustee and holder of a general power of appointment, the rules are combined. Those roles are combined. And there are some fiduciary obligations that basically are implied over to the exercise of the general power of appointment. When I first read this, I thought, well, you know, how does that really reconcile? And it did some research and there's actually a number of cases outside of California where the courts have recognized that trustees cannot take off their fiduciary hat when they're acting in other capacities. And I think that makes sense in California too. Once you're a fiduciary and you're wearing that fiduciary hat, if you've got other other roles within the document, there's gonna be some implied fiduciary duties. Here, what saved the husband is the court specifically looked at probate code section 610F and 610F expressly states that the holder of a general power of appointment acts in a non-fiduciary capacity. So by expressly by statute, you don't have to worry about that um, because the statute says non-fiduciary capacity. But from a planning perspective, and uh, I'd be curious to get Vivian's thoughts from a litigation perspective, but from a planning perspective, if you think about this fiduciary hat or fiduciary role, maybe drafters should be more careful in their documents if they're giving the same person, um, they're making them successor trustee on one hand and giving them other roles within the trust instrument on the other, Uh, Maybe you should be very careful to say whether or not those other roles are held in a fiduciary or non-fiduciary capacity. So things that come to mind are maybe options to purchase real property or a director or a consultant to the trust, or, you know, this always comes up with trust protectors as well. So maybe those are drafting tips that you can take from this. 
But what about the litigation perspective, Vivian? Yeah, I had a lot of questions about this case and more inquiring of the planners, which is, you know, powers of appointment are very probably vanilla and generic to you guys. And whether it's a special or general or limited, I mean, you know, it's fine. But I guess, you know, the husband and wife come to you and you're drafting this document. The wife obviously predeceased the husband. Did the wife know? Did she really understand that when she died, even though the marital trust was irrevocable, it really kind of wasn't insofar as she was giving her husband this general power of appointment where he could just gut the trust and then do whatever he wanted with it. So I guess my question to you guys is, do you explain these concepts in kind of more layman's terms like that so that the wife would understand, okay, if I die before my husband, he can completely change the disposition of our joint assets. I I can't really die knowing that he can do that, or maybe she's very comfortable with that. So I guess that was the question that I had, you know, why was the daughter making such a big stink of this? If the husband and wife had this joint trust and they both agreed to this, you know, maybe there is a more limited remedy by the daughter, even notwithstanding what the statute may say. So what do you guys do in terms of explaining these concepts? And Patrick, how do you explain it to your clients? Well, it's always interesting, like the litigation lens or the planning lens. So I'm reading this case, thinking about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And do I make sure that these roles state whether they're in a fiduciary or non-fiduciary capacity? And then Vivian says, hey, are you explaining to your clients like what kind of power you're actually giving the surviving spouse when you give them a general power of appointment? And uh, that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, have you really counseled your clients on uh, what this means to give a surviving spouse a general power of appointment? I think I go back to the way that I explain a general power of appointment. And I always find this is very helpful to shock them a bit and uh, make them really think about what the survivor can do if they're holding this. And so I call a power of appointment, a power of disappointment. (laughs) I say, if you give your, if you give each other a power of appointment, you're really giving the survivor the power of disappointment. And really say, well, what does that mean? Well, if the survivor happens to be disappointed with any particular beneficiary, if they've got a general or special power of appointment, what it means is they can express their disappointment by exercising it and taking someone out of the trust, out as a beneficiary. That's how I explain it. I think that's pretty effective. And hopefully, Vivian, if you're taking my deposition someday, you'd say, well, that's, that's, I guess that's sufficient to provide um, counsel to your clients that makes them understand the scope of what they could potentially do. But so that's what I, I do explain it. And that's how I explain it. Herb, how do you explain a power of appointment? Well, I, I like the power of disappointment one. I'll, I'm going to start using that. I, I, I just try and tell them, look, when you're giving them your spouse or whoever the holder is, a general power of appointment, just figure that they can direct that property wherever they want. So are you okay with the thought that after your death, somebody can do whatever they want with this power. That part they get. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a follow-up question of what is this power of appointment thing? And so then we'll go over it again because <laughs> they, they, you, can, you can say the words, but sometimes they have to read it and then put it all together. Well, it's complicated because you're telling them that when the first spouse dies, their trusts become irrevocable. 
but it's really not totally true if you if you have a general power of appointment uh, on the part of the surviving spouse. It's a technicality that could be very dramatic. The one thing that did bother me about this case is is if there's a, a fiduciary obligation with the general power for estate tax purposes, isn't that isn't that creating a limitation? Is that a is that a viable limitation? If you've got a general power, I always look at the general power, and that's why I was surprised the case even went up on appeal. Is if you've got a general power, shouldn't you be able to do anything with it? Should there be no restrictions? Well, and then if you carry that forward, if you know if you have a jurisdiction that does couple with a dual role, fiduciary and something else, if you couple that with implied fiduciary duties on the second role, in order to avoid problems like you cite to Herb, the remedy is for the surviving spouse to resign as trustee. And that's the last thing in the world the surviving spouse wants to do to do to cure them of this taint. But in other jurisdictions, that is, that's the out in order to remove any implied fiduciary duties on that second role, you just resign as trustee. So, you know, I see on the power of appointment, but I think by, you know, the Internal Revenue Code makes it pretty clear there that that's in your estate. But on these other roles that you might hold, and that's a harsh pill to swallow to say to, you know, have to resign as trustee to relieve yourself of those duties. Yeah, thanks. That's all we have time for today. Please join us next time when we discuss a pair of probate code section 859 cases, Levin versus Winston Levin, and the state of Ashlock. After a quick discussion of gametic material via the Robinson versus Sadat case, we wind up with an examination of AB 327, a bill which enacted new probate code section 21385. Thanks for listening and hope you join us for part two of my conversation with Vivian and Patrick. Trust Me is a production of the Trusts and Estate Section of the California Lawyers Association and produced by Foley Mara Studios. For further information, please go to calawyers.org, click on Sections, Trusts and Estates, and look for the Education tab to learn about upcoming live programs, online CLE and webcasts, as well as a broad range of low-cost self-study programs. Many of our guests are contributors to the Trusts and Estates Quarterly, the official publication of the section. Benefits of membership include the quarterly, along with email case alerts and other opportunities to stay current in the trusts and estates field. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. And thanks for listening to Trust Me.